This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The advent of non-invasive prenatal testing allows for the use of a simple blood draw from a pregnant woman to test fetal DNA for genetic conditions. As with liquid biopsies, these tests rely on capturing cell-free DNA from the fetus circulating in the mother's blood. We spoke to Paul Billings, chief medical officer for Natira, about the state of non-invasive prenatal testing, the growing use of these tests, and the range of conditions they can detect. Paul, thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you. We're going to talk about cell-free DNA, Natura, and how this is being used to diagnose rare disease prior to birth. Perhaps we can start with cell-free DNA itself. This is a term that people may be familiar with in the context of liquid biopsies. What is cell-free DNA? So cell-free DNA is uh, DNA, which is present in virtually every cell of the body, which is released uh, by those cells. And that release can occur for a variety of metabolic processes. It can be uh, something called apoptosis, uh, which is a programmed cell death. It can be because that cell was attacked by other cells and that can be, or injured in some way, that can be necrosis. Uh, There are several other pathways which release cell-free DNA, maybe, some of that DNA is a signal to other cells. But in any event, it's DNA, fragments of DNA, which are released and are uh, measured in a fluid, usually the blood, uh, but it also could be the urine or the cerebrospinal fluid or maybe even in the bowels or the, or the saliva. So um, it's, it's a uh, fragment of the genetic material uh, which is released and is assayable. Uh, in the in fluids of the body. In the case of women who are pregnant, is fetal DNA always present in the blood in some form? Um, not uh, well. The fetus and the mother are an intimate uh, uh, blood connection. They, you know, the placenta uh, and uh, other touches where the the fetus is growing inside the womb. Uh, uh, interplay with the maternal circulation. And so to the extent that the fetus has a circulation, it is shared with the mother uh, as long as uh, prior to birth. So um, yes, the fetus makes cell-free DNA and yes, the mother makes cell-free DNA. So uh, for during the nine months of gestation, uh, fetal and maternal uh, uh, DNA, cell-free DNA are are in a mixture uh, and can be assayed uh, potentially in the fetal blood, but 
that that's obviously hard to get at. Uh, so you 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 use the maternal blood. I suspect that in terms of quantity, maternal blood is overwhelmingly containing maternal DNA. How detectable is fetal DNA in maternal blood, and and you know, how do you determine whether you're reading uh, maternal DNA or or fetal DNA? Well, so uh, fetal DNA is uh, as the fetus grows older. Uh, it becomes a significant component uh, of the maternal circulation and is, frankly is much easier to detect when the fetus is 20 or 30 weeks of gestation than when it's 10 weeks of this gestation. Um, and it can be very, very difficult to detect, let's say before nine weeks of detection. Now there are different methods by which um, one can detect uh, the fetal component of the maternal uh, cell-free DNA population. Um, di different methods have different sensitivities and specificities uh, and different failure uh, modes. In other words, uh, some uh, methods are so complex that to actually get to a reading uh, has been uh, historically problematic. But uh, with uh, developments in a highly multiplex uh, polymerase chain reaction, uh, the so-called Xerox machine of DNA, um, uh, uh, with advancements in that world, as well as in advancements in uh, um, the uh, ability to make uh, libraries and, and do sample um, um, development uh, for cell-free DNSs, as well as the bioinformatics on the back end. Uh, where you 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 differentiate fetal DNA from maternal DNA from the noise of these uh, of, of these assays. These all all these advancements have allowed uh, certain methods to be exquisitely sensitive and exquisitely effective at detecting the cell-free DNA from the fetus. So being able to detect and and read this fetal DNA has a allowed for non-invasive prenatal testing, which is known as NIPT. This offers the potential to detect genetic disease prior to birth. How many different conditions are screened with this type of test today? Well, uh, again, it varies a little bit about which test um, you, you apply. Um, many of the providers of NIPS use a, a, simply a chromosome counting uh, methodology and that has uh, that can be applied, and uh, that has a, a, a sensitivity for certain kinds of chromosomal arrangements. Um, our method uses thousands of uh, polymorphisms, changes in the DNA that differentiate the fetal DNA uh, from the maternal DNA, and that that method is particularly robust uh, at uh, detecting um, the common trisomies. So that's uh, trisomy 21, trisomy 18, trisomy 13, um, uh, but other key differences as well, like uh, monosomy X, like uh, a whole extra complement of chromosomes called triploidy. Uh, the sex chromosomes also have a pretty high frequency of variation. That's uh, monosomy X is one of them, but uh, also XXX, XXY, uh, XYY. Uh, those are uh, common polymorphisms of the sex chromosomes. 
Those are very important. And then there's the whole world of the so-called microdeletion syndromes. Uh, these are uh, well-described uh, newborn conditions that um, uh, involve small uh, either additions or deletions of uh, pieces of DNA at specific sites within the genome. Uh, the most common uh, one um, that we often talk about is the 22Q syndrome, deletion syndrome, uh, but there are things like Prader-Willi and Creed-Duchat and, and Angelman syndrome. These are all um, uh, areas where um, um, our technology can uh, easily detect uh, these kinds of, of aberrations in the fetus uh, with a great deal of sensitivity. We also have a, a, a separate uh, kind of analysis when there is a suspicion that there is a monogenic, uh, usually dominant de novo disorder. You know, let's say that uh, a mother has had a, a pregnancy uh, that's had a, 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 an unexpected a finding of um, osteogenesis imperfecta or achondro, you know, a form of dwarfism like achondroplasia uh, in a previous pregnancy. And so that pregnancy is again at high, high risk for um, a second pregnancy of that sort. Or let's say that there's been an ultrasound done um, and uh, that ultrasound is suggestive of some uh, monogenic a new disorder uh, in that fetus. We can do our Vistara assay, uh, which looks at 25 rare genetic syndromes uh, like Noonan syndrome, uh, like achondroplasia, like osteogenesis imperfecta. And um, we can assess uh, that pregnancy specifically for the presence of a fetus with uh, those anomalies. And that, that test is incredibly um, a specific and sensitive uh, to the detection of those disorders. So, so we have um, the panorama assay, which is our highly multiplex PCR, uh, which uh, we've, you know, we've modified and it's gotten better and better. And so that detects the, the trisomies, the sex chromosome abnormalities, the microdeletion syndromes, and also, by the way, is very good at uh, distinguishing monozygotic from dizygotic uh, um, twin pregnancies. And that's a very important uh, distinction as well, because um, monozygotic pregnancies have a set of complications uh, that dizygotics generally do not. And so um, you can uh, manage dizygotic pregnancies differently uh, as an OB or a, a maternal fetal medicine specialist than you would uh, if you were uh, managing a monozygotic uh, pregnancy. And then we have these this other side of the house, which is high-risk pregnancies, uh, pregnancies that we're worried about because of other findings uh, where we might uh, apply the Vistara assay. My sense is from a technology point of view, we could detect a far greater number of conditions with this type of testing than we're using today. What determines what conditions would be tested for? Well, um, there, there, there really are uh, two sides of the coin there. One is what the unmet need is uh, and what we can do something about, right? I mean, uh, the pressure to add things is to, to add things that uh, make a difference uh, to that mother as she uh, carries that fetus, to the fetus uh, so that it develops as normal as it can while it's still in utero, 
and then uh, for its uh, flourishing after after birth. So uh, to the extent that there are proven interventions or proven drugs uh, that uh, can make a difference uh, uh, having the, uh, identified something uh, that's uh, potentially variant within the pregnancy, that's one major criteria. Uh, the other criteria, of course, is um, you know, access to uh, a fetal assessment, whether it be uh, cell-free DNA in the maternal circulation uh, or um, um, other kind of, of uh, 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 fetal uh, determination, whether it be through amniocentesis or through uh, um, uh, other methods, uh, ultrasound and so forth. And uh, using that uh, information um, uh, and, and mining that information for uh, inferences about the condition of the, of the fetus. So it's getting the most information you can from the uh, biomarkers and analytes that you have available to you. And then it's also marrying that with clinical utility and clinical effectiveness uh, uh, that you can do something with that information, uh, either manage that, that pregnancy with more interventions, manage that pregnancy with less interventions, and, uh, and deliver that child uh, in a setting uh, that optimizes its health uh, uh, later on. What's the case for using this testing today? What benefits does it provide for the conditions that you're able to detect? Well, uh, uh, let's, you know, let's take an example. Um, um, you know, many people are familiar with trisomy 21 uh, or uh, Down syndrome. Uh, as it was historically called, uh, because uh, there, there are many children that are born uh, with that disorder. There are many children who are, are stillborn or, or, or have a miscarriage, many pregnancies and miscarriages with that variation, but a significant number of them are born and people have a familiarity with that. Well, those kids, uh, you know, it, it's very evident that those kids have um, cardiac and other kinds of skeletal uh, uh, problems uh, as they develop uh, in utero. Um, they can have metabolic issues at birth or near birth, uh, other kinds of uh, developmental uh, issues, uh, neurodevelopmental issues, which can be uh, modified. So the earlier you identify uh, a pregnancy with Down syndrome, uh, the more you can provide uh, interventions either in utero or at birth uh, or around birth that um, improve the outcome of those those pregnancies, and so that's a major uh, uh, finding. That that's true, by the way, of several of the microdeletion syndromes. There's there's quite good evidence uh, that identifying the microdeletion syndromes in utero uh, can improve uh, the later stage uh, uh, fetal development, and then the newborn care of of those uh, individuals and those. Uh, pregnancies can be, instead of um, delivered by a midwife in a rural situation, let's say, uh, can be uh, delivered at a, a tertiary care center that's, you know, perfectly capable of taking care of the uh, uh, complex management needs of some of the, those children. So um, those are, I think, good examples where um, uh, where uh, this kind of thing can happen. And that's true, by the way, of the Mastara uh, disorders as well, the, the, the 25 
uh, rather rare monogenic disorders that uh, because you know many of them let's say have a, a collagen abnormality and those you know uh, if you try to deliver those uh, in certain situations you can really harm uh, the child as it's being delivered and so you need to you know really be in a, in a unique uh, uh, setting to deliver those kids. Well, walk me through how the tests work. Take me from getting a sample from a patient to the result. Well, so if we're talking about uh, uh, both the uh, um, panorama, which is our uh, non-invasive prenatal uh, test that we offer for all pregnancies, uh, or the Vistara test, uh, which is, as I said, was increasingly um, uh, being applied for pregnancies which are known to be at high risk or uh, other pregnancies where uh, the information about these this cadre these 25 rare disorders uh, is desired um, uh, uh, basically uh, as early as nine or ten weeks uh, we take a blood sample uh, the blood sample uh, is 10 to 20 cc's and is um, um, transported uh, uh, to our lab uh, where the sample uh, is prepped and uh, the DNA is uh, isolated uh, from uh, the uh, that sample, and that um, that that DNA, as I said, is a uh, mixture of maternal and fetal DNA, and then um, uh, the particular method that we apply the highly multiplex uh, PCR method, uh, which we apply, uh, is then done in the laboratory. That takes maybe a week uh, uh, with the sample prep and the, uh, and the DNA step, the DNA uh, isolation, the DNA sequencing. Uh, then that information is run through our bioinformatic uh, uh, pipeline uh, with the algorithms and the um, uh, neural networks and the AI enhancement. And that all has uh, produced fewer and fewer errors and more and more reliable results. You know, we've for instance, dropped our no-call. We used to get four uh, or five percent uh, no-call rates. Our no-call rates now, on first pass, are around one percent or one and a half percent. And if we allow for one redraw, if we're uh, if we have particularly uh, low results, uh, the the no-call rate becomes uh, less than one percent. Uh, and uh, so that's a fantastic uh, situation because, as I said, if you draw at uh, 10 or 11 weeks, the field component of the uh, maternal circulation is very, very small, a very small portion of that. So that's an amazing that we can get such a high rate of calls uh, uh, at, uh, with such a small fraction of cell-free DNA. But um, so then the report is generated after the informatics and uh, that's returned uh, to the uh, referring physician uh, and, uh, and shortly thereafter is made available uh, uh, under certain circumstances directly to the patient. And then we, of course, provide uh, counseling and information support, uh, whether that be uh, telegenetic counseling, face-to-face uh, genetic counseling in some practices. Uh, we have chatbots uh, for both the pre- and post-test phases of the generation of this information. And so uh, we, we have uh, a whole a panoply of uh, support uh, informational support, counseling support uh, for those families and for those physicians to make 
that information as actionable and appropriate as possible. You've recently incorporated AI into the analysis of the test. What's been the benefit of that? How has that changed outcomes? Yeah, as as I just uh, uh, said to you, uh, the in, there there have been really two major improvements. One has been uh, in detection of these kind of uh, unusual uh, anomalies uh, that like the microdeletion syndromes. These are uh, like 22Q. Uh, the positive predictive value for 22Q uh, was historically uh, with this kind of testing rather poor. It was in the tens or 20 uh, percent uh, positive predictive value, which you know is better than nothing, but isn't isn't uh, as useful as you'd like. Uh, with uh, recent improvements with AI that we've added uh, to our, uh, our highly multiplex PCR, um, many thousands of SNP assay, uh, we can get that positive predictive value above 50%. And that makes it much more valuable. And the negative predictive value is also very high. Um, so uh, that's very important. Um, the other thing, as I mentioned previously, uh, our no call rate, uh, which can happen because we measure so many. Uh, different uh, variations in the DNA, and that you know that sometimes can go amiss, and so we get a no call, a situation where the sample isn't right for all those measurements, or the the amount of cell free DNA is too low to make all those measurements. Um, our no call rate, which used to be um, you know around three, four, five percent, is now less than one percent uh, after the second draw, and uh, that's an incredible drop, and that means thousands of more. Uh, blood samples can be uh, successfully analyzed. This is a test that was initially used to screen women who were considered to be higher risk pregnancies. But in 2020, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists updated its clinical practice guidelines to recommend the use of NIP for all pregnant women, regardless of age. How has that changed the landscape with physicians and payers? Well, uh, it has it's been a sea change i mean uh really universally across the government payers and the uh, third party private insurance payers uh, all of them have recognized that nipt is a far more uh, uh effective manner for screening uh, uh pregnancies uh than uh, previous serum testing was and that um that's that there is even the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology even recognized that there was differences uh, within the methods uh, of doing that non-invasive prenatal testing. I mean, for instance, uh, the, the Panorama Natera method uh, is much better at, uh, at detecting sex chromosome and, uh, anomalies, uh, at detecting triploidy, and at detecting uh, uh, microdeletion syndromes than some of the other methods for that can be used in uh, NIPs. Uh, for detecting the uh, common trisomies, so um, all the, uh, the basically all the commercial payers uh, and all the government payers have recognized uh, that uh, average risk women who uh, want to undergo uh, this kind of screening should be offered uh, this um, uh, this kind of testing, uh, and that, um, that that it should be a paid uh, benefit if it's a third party. Uh, or government payer uh, situation, and that um, um, that the uh, children of uh, that are identified that are at uh, risk uh, for should be uh, uh, confirmed and managed uh, throughout their pregnancies. 
And is there some kind of regular internal review or external review about whether uh, a new condition should be added to the panel? Well, um, yes, I think uh, both the professional societies, uh, the major uh, peer-reviewed publications, uh, uh, the, the professional society through their guideline committees, uh, obviously the peer-reviewed publications through the conduct of large studies uh, and so forth, um, and, and the innovative biotechnology companies uh, like Natera, uh, all look for uh, what additional information uh, can, uh, in a cost-effective manner, be added uh, to the uh, current panel, and uh, you know, are there uh, effective management measures that make that information uh, highly useful? Um, as an example, we've just completed uh, uh, the SMART study, which was a multi-year, 18,000-patient prospective trial uh, looking at our uh, panorama um, method uh, for um, its ability, you know, its 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 uh, ability in the real world uh, to detect um, anomalies. And what we showed, uh, and which will be published in a series of papers in, in uh, a variety of journals, is that the test is much more effective uh, than the previous uh, serum test for detecting the common trisomies. That it has a sensitivity and specificity, uh, you know, uh, in the 99% range. And um, that uh, this, this test, uh, you know, really does improve in a dramatic way across uh, uh, different types of cohorts, but in particular, the average risk cohort, uh, the, uh, the information that can be used to manage those pregnancies. And looking out <laughs> many years, given where technology is going and, and the changing cost of things like sequencing? Do you ever see a, a, a much broader applicability of this test to, to screening? Well, uh, I, I believe that uh, over time, we will be able to do a whole genome analysis of the fetus uh, using a maternal sample. Uh, and uh, with that information, uh, We'll have, you know, a complete genetic picture uh, over time as we learn what the meaning of uh, some of these uh, genetic variations that we would detect uh, really are. But over time, we'll have a complete genetic picture uh, of uh, a developing fetus at various stages uh, of gestation. That could be enormously valuable in management. Uh, obviously, how we differentiate significant uh, genetic variation from incidental uh, genetic variation or, or not very meaningful uh, genetic variation will continue to be a challenge and will need um, better data sets, you know, more diverse data sets, more unbiased data sets to get to that, to that world. But uh, I do think that uh, over time, uh, we'll, we will have the opportunity uh, to have complete genetic information, and then the challenge will be uh, to uh, make that components of that information really continue to make it useful, continue to offer families and their physicians uh, meaningful interactions, meaningful in, uh, in ways to manage that information uh, to the benefit of the, the pregnant mother and to the benefit of the fetus. Paul Billings, Chief Medical Officer for Natira. 
Paul, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.